We're going to be looking at Psalm 131 tonight, so if you do have a Bible with you, um, please turn to the book of Psalms, which are in the middle of the Bible, Psalm 131, and we're kind of nearing the end of our sort of twin series on the songs of ascent and uh, on the parables of Jesus. Um, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read. Father, we do pray tonight that there would be real help from the Holy Spirit. We we thank you, Lord, that there is an anointing of the Holy Spirit, an anointing that teaches us, helps us to understand. There's an anointing from you that is authentic. It's not something we've just dreamed up or whipped up. It's from you, and it's authentic. And we want to touch that and enjoy that, and live in that increasingly, and learn to discern that, and, uh, and not, just, um, take, not just do things really in natural power, but use Christian terms to explain it. We pray that we would really learn how to fly with you. We pray that um, the, the power of the scriptures and the life of the Spirit would, would really pierce us, so that we would more and more be, have the aroma of Jesus Christ about us. Um, something very distinctive and very real and very transformational. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's read Psalm 131, Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. There it is. Three short verses. Um, Don't expect a short sermon. Okay. <laughs> what we have here, particularly in verse 2, is this beautiful picture of divine peace, peace from God. The Bible describes the peace of God that goes beyond understanding. So all hell can be breaking loose around you, but the peace of God remains intact. That's how you know it's the peace of God. Um, it's not, you, you know, you can't, it's, it, it's unreasonable. The psalmist here, he, he's, he's discovered how to live in that peace. And he's wanting us to understand the secrets of that or how to unlock that and discover that. It's a beautiful picture. Um, he describes it like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, what's he saying there? What he's saying is this. When a child is weaned, it goes from really, I guess, being fed at its mother's breast, sort of kind of demand fed, fed at will to, to a place where it's no longer doing that and now it has meals. It has um, breakfast, lunch and dinner and knows when the meals are coming and pretty much has the meal, enjoys it and then is relaxed in between because he knows we've got another meal coming at lunchtime, has that, enjoys that, is then contented in between that because then tea is coming, goes to bed happily knowing in the morning it'll be breakfast. And so life is marked by a rhythm, life is marked by rest, contentment, peace. It's going to come and it's going to come at the right time. Compared to a child that is not weaned, that basically at the first pang of hunger goes, that's how it works when a child isn't weaned. They've they've yet to learn that there's a rhythm, they've yet to learn that mummy cares, they've yet to learn that it's all in hand and it's still at the point of, I need it now. Because I felt a slight pain of hunger. And what David is doing here, he's observed this. King David who wrote the psalm, he's observed this. And he said, my soul is like the child who's weaned. My soul has learned that in God there is a rhythm. That in God there are seasons. That he knows what I need when. That he is good. That he cares. And in those times that are a bit sparser. Or those times that are a bit more confusing. Or those times that are a bit certain. My soul is at rest within me. 
I'm not panicking, freaking out, running around like a headless chicken. I know my God cares. I know my God is good. I know he will do all that he's promised. That's maturity. That's what people long for. People long for this. This, uh, this is easily snatched away, um, I think, especially when you're very young in the faith. You can feel like, yeah, I've got it, I've got it, I've got the peace of God now. And then one thing goes wrong. <laughs> yeah? It's, oh. And you learn, you realize that all of us are probably quite finely balanced in that sense. Uh, but as you grow, by the grace of God, you broaden out and you learn to trust more in his goodness and walk through seasons of darkness, but with rhythm and at peace. This is a beautiful thing here. Um, and uh, I'm sure, would you like this? Yeah, okay. I thought, I thought so. So, uh, now, thankfully, uh, unlike a lot of the scriptures, the keys to unlocking this stuff really is just sitting there on the surface of the psalm like keys that have been scattered on the grass. We're gonna, not going to have to dig a lot. They're just sitting there. It's very obvious. There are two main things. The first one is the fact that it starts, O Lord, and it ends hope in the Lord. Okay? It's enveloped with the Lord. It's all about trusting the Lord. The problem with that phrase is it's so vague that you can think, well, what does it mean to really trust in the Lord? And many people say, I do, and actually don't. And profess, well, that's me, but it's not. So let's end on that one, because by the time we've got through the other one, which is in verse 1, it will really help to define what it means to hope in the Lord. So the other keys really are lying here in verse 1, where King David says there are three things that are not true about him. Number one, his heart is not lifted up. What does that mean? It means that within himself, he doesn't have a sense of self-importance, self-grandeur. He doesn't see himself as somehow set apart from others and as somehow, well, I'm not quite like you. I'm a bit different from that. He, in his heart, he doesn't, he doesn't hold himself in this real high esteem of, well, you know, this is me. And I'm, a, I'm, just a, I'm, a, I'm pretty impressed with myself. He's saying, actually, I've st- I, that is not me. My heart is not like that. Then he says, my eyes are not lifted up. Now, throughout the Bible, there's this phrase, haughty eyes, one of the things that the Lord hates. And haughty eyes, it really, it's describing that way of looking at others, whereby you think you're better than them, where you can just look dismissively at someone, you can kill someone with a stare, or you can look disparagingly, or mockingly, or scoffingly, or just the way with your eyes you look at them, you can say, I'm in a different place from you, I'm I'm looking from higher ground, and uh, the Lord hates it. And David says, that's not me. And then the final thing is this, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He knows his limits. He knows his boundaries. He knows what he can and what he can't do. He doesn't think that he's the guy that can do anything. You see, Jesus is described in the Bible as the one who is filled with the Spirit without measure. We are described as those who have been gifted according to a certain measure, different for each of us, according to God's wisdom. So as individuals, we do not walk in an unlimited measure of the Spirit. That was Jesus. So all of us should know, yeah, I can do that, but I can't do that. Or I can do this particular thing in this setting, but in that setting I can't. My gift is not of a measure that can take me to do it in that setting. So some people can speak really well at a Bible study with 15 people, put them in a room with 50, and they can't do it. Why not? Their measure. They don't have the measure. Others are great one-on-one, put them with 15. They can't do it. Others can do great in a room like this, put them in an auditorium, they fall apart. Why? It's a measure. They haven't got the measure. There are different measures of gift and different kinds of gift. David's saying, I know my gift and I know my measure. And I'm not going to live in this permanent state of overreach. I'm not going to live constantly trying to prove myself to myself or to others or to God or to imaginary figures who look over me to show that I can do it. When I know in my heart, I can't do this. God hasn't called me to and he hasn't gifted me to. So we have these three things: heart lifted up, eyes. Um, sorry, yeah, heart lifted up. Yeah, eyes not eyes raised too high, and occupying ourselves with things that are just plain too marvelous for us. You can broadly bring them under one category called pride. That's what it is. And David is saying, "That's not me." Now we need to pause there for a moment, and here's why: If ever there was a man who had a right to feel proud, it's this guy. A mighty king in Israel, a fearsome warrior, a world-class songwriter. I mean, handsome as well. I don't like this guy much. 
He's got it all. He's got it all. And God really loves him. <laughs> He's got it all. So I want you to understand as we look at this psalm, we're not writing really, uh, we're not reading the diaries of the guy who really didn't make it in life. So he's kind of made himself feel better by saying, well, you know, I'm kind of a humble guy and, you know, that's just kind of the way. I didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't want to stretch, I didn't want to go too far into things. Somebody's making excuses for not having made an impact. This guy made an incredible impact. And he's saying, but you know what, when it comes to pride, I'm not going to go there. Let's wait to the words here. We're going to look at pride and humility tonight. Uh, it's tricky with pride because it's so toxic but it's uh, celebrated in our society. It's actually encouraged and celebrated. And, uh, and so it makes it really hard to actually recognize because we kind of know it's a deadly sin, yeah? And yet actually it seems like everyone's really kind of doing stuff that seems kind of proud and everyone's going, well, go on. And it's like, oh, how does that work? It makes us hard to recognize it as a deadly sin. It seems normal. Pride is a bit like Jason Bourne of the uh, Bourne trilogy. It can... It, it really has a number of different identities and uses a lot of different passports um, to gain access to people's hearts. Okay, it comes in all kinds. It won't call itself pride normally. Sometimes it will blatantly. There's a magazine called Pride. You get the gay pride thing. Some people are very blatant, but normally, um, especially with believers, it will come in very much under the radar, and uh, it will be much more of a subtle thing because. Um, it's recognized and understood that pride, you know, okay, is it good? Well, people in our society aren't sure, but there's an increasing move towards celebrating it. So I've just put together a little list of uh, cliches, phrases, uh, terminologies, and, 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 well, just plain old words, really, that, um, have been, uh, that pride has been known to use as fake passports to get access into human hearts. So here's just a few. There's a lot more, but just uh, number one is you deserve it. Number two is it's your life. Number three is it because you're worth it. <laughs> Number four, my Brent Cross and other my thingies that are increasingly popular. My this, my um, self-love, self-esteem, feel-good factor, unconditional positive regard, search for significance, aspiration, and self-respect. Now, some of those terms and phrases are not as toxic as others, um, and some of them can be used to denote something not all bad. It's a mixed, it's a mixed bag. We'll look at that in a moment. Um, but they're all vague enough uh, to be easily misconstrued. So I want to just maybe look at a few of those phrases tonight that we're all very familiar with and say, look, what the heck's wrong with those things, if anything? This is vital to understanding um, and getting right your relationship with God. Vital. And you'll see it as we as we go on, and we will do a bit of Q&A because it could be controversial for some of you. So Nathaniel Brandon, who was, I think, a bit of a brainy boy, he said this in 1969. <coughs> he briefly defined self-esteem in this way. We look at self-esteem for a few minutes. He defined it in this way. So good self-esteem is, in quotes, the experience of being competent to cope with the basic challenges of life. Cool. And being worthy of happiness. Hold on a minute. Let's, we'll stop. We'll, let's, let's focus in there. Competent to face the challenges of life. Okay, fair enough. Worthy of happiness. Now, let's just look at this because worthy is a tricky word, isn't it? What does worthy denote? What is it? I thought I'm going to look this up. What does worthy actually mean? Looked it up in the dictionary. <clears throat> worthy brings together two concepts. It brings together the concept of inherent value, that you have inherent value. That's biblical. We'll look at that later. But it also brings together the concept of merit, that you've done something which it really is kind of worthy of some kind of either credit or whatever. Let me just give you an illustration to see how it works. For example, if someone did a terrible misdeed, a terrible crime, someone might say, that person's worthy for the gallows, worthy to be hanged or something like that, or worthy to rot in hell. What are they saying there? Number one, they're saying that person has got inherent value. They, they are reasonable human beings. They should have known better. Yeah, They're not unreasoning animals. They did that in the full knowledge of what they were doing in a premeditated way. They have got inherent value. And then there's the merit or the anti-merit, the deed itself. They did something and yet you did that. Bring those two things together. You are worthy of that treatment. Okay, So that's what worthy means. Now, this guy, Nathaniel Brandon, is saying good self-esteem uh, means this, that we want to see you understand that you are worthy of Happiness. Now, in the Bible, the term worthy is used over 50 times. 
12 of those times, it's talking about someone being worthy of punishment. 17 times, it's talking about someone being not worthy of a particular punishment because they didn't do that particular crime. Nine times, it's talking about God's worthiness, that God is worthy. 13 times, it is talking about, in a positive sense, people and that they are worthy for a particular thing. Um, that they were accounted worthy of esteem by others. Either they were um, men of standing in the community, women of standing in the community, or they'd, they'd been faithful to God, and so they were accounted worthy to, to kind of, to, to walk, to kind of um, to reign with him and to be entrusted with certain things. They did something. As a result, they were counted as worthy. You never, not once in the Bible, find anyone ever proclaiming their own worth. You will not find it in the Scripture. It is foreign to the Bible. Or that they somehow deserve to be happy because they're worth it. Happiness, true happiness, is to be enjoyed as a gift of grace, not as a right. This, we are getting into some real subtle thought lines of thinking here that you need to know because it's so subtle that if you don't think it through, you'll end up embracing stuff that works against the gospel in your life. And it will gradually just erode at the gospel. And in the end, you, you won't be quite sure what is actually so distinct about what you believe. And what does the Bible actually teach about this or about that? Now, not only this, but if you begin to apply terms like this to people, you're worthy of happiness. People who the Bible describes as sin-sick then it can get quite ugly. Um, the dictionary defines esteem in the following ways. The condition of being honoured, regarded highly, thought much of, admired, and a feeling of delighted approval. So good self-esteem, therefore, is about viewing yourself in high regard or admiring yourself or thinking much of yourself or having a delighted approval about yourself. You won't find that in the Scripture. You, you really won't. Um, We'll look at what we're finding in the scripture in just a moment. I actually wonder if this kind of teaching is not to blame for much of the gang killings around. Because a lot of it is rooted in the fact of, you didn't show me the respect I deserve. I deserve respect. Let's just get behind that, do you? On what grounds? Because I'm me. Okay. Isn't that interesting? I show people respect. Why do I show people respect? Well, actually, I show people love. Actually, let's, just, let's just really pull this apart. I think about this this afternoon. I show people love, hopefully, and in, in a respectful way, absolutely, yeah? And kindness. And regardless, right? Why? Because that's what God shows us, and we're to show it, yeah? Yeah? People made the image of God. We show kindness. We show love. But respect's a funny old one, really, because I do find that with certain people over time, I'm just thinking, wow, I'm just respecting you more and more and more. Have you ever found that? People grow in your estimation. Have you ever found that? It's just me. You think, what's happening there? Real respect is growing over time. Why? Because of who they are and what they do. Not because they're saying, respect me. And if, in fact, anyone comes along and says, respect me, what is my instant response? Disrespect, am I right? Yeah? Why? Because it's ugly and it's wrong. But, but it's a shame in some ways because these people have probably been brought up saying, being, being taught this stuff. You deserve this. You deserve this. This is what you deserve. And we wonder why it's all going wrong and all going crazy. Maybe we should contrast uh, this with biblical humility, which is best described as self-forgetfulness. Not self-love, not self-hate. Self-forgetfulness. That you just... It's just an non-issue. <laughs> I'm just excited about Jesus. And uh, man, I've received mercy. And I've been forgiven. And he loves me. Wow, he is incredible. Uh, that's, that's biblical. It's very different. See, my concern is this, is that you find someone who's looking like they're in a bad way and you try and help them by giving them some self-esteem and you end up jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because um, you take one problem, self-loathing or self-hatred or whatever, and you uh, fix it with another problem, self-love. Let's look at self-love biblically. Because um, uh, I think that the way the world uses it, it's just another term for self-worship. And I'm going to show you this because it's really nuanced biblically. So go to Ephesians 5, 
I'm going to look at husbands and wives for a moment. Because this is where the Bible talks really positively about self-love. So we want to understand what is good self-love biblically. Because the Bible talks about self-love really positively and really negatively. So we need to understand how does this thing work? What's God saying here? So if we go to Ephesians 5 verses 28 and 29, um, Paul's unpacking the way a husband and a wife should uh, be with one another. And uh, in Ephesians 5 28, um, the Apostle Paul writes this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For, and he's encouraging that. It's a good thing. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So what we get into here is Paul saying, husbands, love your wife. Because if you love your wife and you're one with her, if you're loving her, it shows that you actually love yourself because she's part of you now. So love her as you love yourself. And what he's saying there is, is if you don't love her, you don't love yourself. That's kind of that's strange behavior. That is strange. Now, the word here for love is agape, which means doing good. So what Paul is saying is, do your wife good sacrificially in the same way you do yourself good. And what is he talking about? We're here, he specifically says it's about looking after yourself. No one, no one sort of destroys their body. People nourish it and cherish it. You think about things like, what's for breakfast? Am I right? What is that? That is good self-love. Yeah, I want to look after myself. If you've got a hole in your shoe, what do you think? I need, a new, I need some new shoes, yeah? That's self-love, biblically. It's, it's a good and positive and a noble thing. It means that actually you want to keep yourself in the best possible shape so you are in optimum shape for service to God. You, you, want, you, you lift your head up higher because you know he has called you, he loves you, and you're representing him. And to love yourself in that way is a good and positive thing. And if you get married, to love your spouse in that way. Fantastic. Then we go on to the, to the great commandment. Love uh, your neighbor, the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There it is. Now, historically, for centuries, how have people interpreted this? Here's how. Listen, you love yourself. You just do. You're good to yourself. You just are. Now treat others the same way. Okay, that's, that's how the command works. Okay? Do good to others. Over the last few decades in the Christian world, it's been skewed. And people have started teaching this. No, no, you really need to learn how to love yourself. What this means is, is that if you can't really love yourself, you can't love your neighbor. You need to learn how to love yourself. Develop fond affection. For, learn how to like yourself. Learn how to view yourself with positive regard. This, this is utterly alien to centuries of Christian teaching. This is a different kind of self-love that the Bible flatly condemns. 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's two words biblically for love. The agape we looked at, this one is phileo, which means affection, fond affection, that kind of thing. So 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Then we get a huge list of sins. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. What tops the list of sins there? Self-love. There, that is the kind of love, that is the kind of self-love that recently over the last few decades, some Christians have been trying to say, you really need to nurture that, nurture that like for yourself. Buy yourself lots of things and, and really learn, learn how to love yourself because that's the greatest love of all. And then once you've really done that, um, then you can really know how to love others. And, and it's a false gospel. It is utterly anti-Christian, anti-biblical. Uh, it, is, it really is not what God is calling you to do. It's a sign of the last days. It's a sign of an apostate church, a church that falls away from the power of God. It's an appearance of godliness. Yeah, they sort of sing and they kind of carry the Bible with them. Some, but where's the power? Where's the spirit? Well, the spirit's not going to get behind that because he loves truth. That's what he gets behind. And I tell you, it's a it's massive burden for us who lead this church that we will be marked by the authentic anointing of the Holy Spirit. We must love the truth of God. And discern what's what's going on here. We're gonna we'll keep going. I'm really contending for the fact that when the Lord comes into our lives with his truth, that it takes center stage. We don't add it in 
and just mix it up. It's, that's called syncretism. And God, throughout Scripture, really rails against such an approach. Um, believers are described in Romans 6, verse 17, as those who have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. That is, I'm going for, I'm going for the, what does the Bible say? I'm going for, what does the Bible say about me? What is the biblical anthropology? How does the Bible describe people? I'm going for that. I'm embracing that from the heart. All of our categories and perspectives are reworked and realigned through the lens of Scripture. What does God say? How, how does God see it? Because he made, he made the thing. He, he gets it. <laughs> okay? He gets it. He really does. He made it. He knows how it works. Um, Throughout the Bible, God's, so what does God say? If God's not into self-esteem, and this, what is God into? Well, he, he says two things about all of us, and then the third thing about believers. So about all of us, he says these two things. Number one, we, are in, we have inherent dignity because we have been made in his image. We have been made in the image of God. There's a royalty. There's an inherent dignity there. That, um, that is, it's, it's, a, it's the divine stamp. It's, we are the pinnacle of the creation of God. Ah, it's incredible. We can walk with our head held high. We've been made in his image to represent his good rule on the earth. All of us. All of us. If you are a human being, you've been made in the image of God. In his likeness. To represent and reflect his glory. It's beautiful. It's, ab- it's stunning. It's absolutely, panoramically stunning. It's who you are. You might say, well, people say that about me, and this person said that. Listen, there's really only one voice and one source that counts. He says, you are made in his image. <laughs> the whole world can be saying this, that, and the other about you. He says, he's made you in his image. Secondly, he says that we have fallen from that, because that being in his image and reflecting him properly the necessity is that we are in relationship with him to do that. But through Adam's sin, we've fallen. We're born alienated. We're born, in that sense, separated from him. And so we've fallen into the grip of sin and darkness. So in that sense, none of us uh, live up to what we are called to be. And you've got to understand with sin, it's not just that we do a few bad things. It's like we're under a grip. It's like the power pervades our heart. And we find ourselves thinking, uh, saying and doing things that at times you think, I can't believe this is me. These were things that a year ago I would have vowed would never have been me. And now look, these are things I can't believe I've thought that this thing entered my mind. And that's sin. It's real. It's, we're all the same. If that's, you're thinking, oh, it's just me. No, it's what we are. We're fallen. We're sinful. Okay? That is what has happened to all of us. It's important that we understand that. So we were walking contradiction. Okay? There's this glory, this honor, this dignity, and this corruption. That's the human being. For believers, there's this third thing, that we've been recreated in the likeness of Christ. That that heart that, heart that was under the power and rule of sin has been ripped out by God's mercy. That heart of stone and the heart of flesh put in. We've been born again. We've been made new in Jesus Christ. We've been restored to relationship with him. And then we spend the rest of our life, really, learning to live into and walk in that new identity. We learn to live out of the truth. And we spend our life really leaving aside and laying aside ways of thinking that came out of the old, that were really futile, based on the fact that I didn't know God we lay those things aside and we walk in the truth of who he is and in relationship and fellowship with him. But because our body is not yet glorified, we still live within dwelling sin. Part of our life is that daily we crucify those sinful desires. That's the Christian life. That's who we are. That is what God says. And um, I would just say, look, you do not need to create a framework of self-love or self-image or self-worth or self-esteem. You've got what God says. Commit yourself with all your heart to the truth of God. It, it, there's a simplicity here that I'm a, really appealing for. You take God at his word and allow it to powerfully work in you. We don't need a man-made framework. We've got the Bible as a plumb line. Let's submit to it. Now, sadly, Christians have even baptized a lot of these strange phrases and thinking. Listen to some phrases that you may have heard around in Christian circles. Reach your full potential in God. Be the best me you possibly can. It's your time. Now, these are, these are the kind of things you see in the Christian world, right? That I want to just look at the first one, which is probably the most plausible, and just show you what's going on there. Okay? 
Fulfill your potential in God or reach your full potential in God. That's the most plausible. Some of you are thinking, what's wrong with that? I want to show you what's wrong with that. Um, What's probably being said there is this. Go on a course and get equipped so that you can serve God better. Brilliant. And for that, right? That's a good thing, okay? We should be being equipped so that we can serve God better. That's, that's probably what's being plugged by that phrase. Fulfill your, you know, do this course and fulfill your true potential in God. That's probably what's going on there. Great. But look at the motivating factor there. The two motivating factors the Bible gives us for being equipped and serving are not even mentioned and the one the Bible is silent about is the one that's being used as the primary motivating tool. It's about you. It's all about you. Do this course and get equipped. Why? So you can be the Christian you're called to be. And people can look at you and think, wow, you've really reached your potential. Aren't you amazing? What reasons does the Bible give for getting equipped and serving others? Number one, that God might be glorified. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You're the city on a hill. Do not cover over your light, but let men see your good works. Why? So they might glorify your Father in heaven. That's Christian motivation. And the second one, you read about it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and in Romans 12, is about, is about building up others. It's for the good of others. I want to get equipped and prepared. Why? Because I want to serve you. I want to strengthen you. I want to see you built up. I want to see this part of the church strengthened here. I, 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 I've been released from the futility of self-absorption, of thinking about me all the time, of just looking in every crazy window. At, when I look from this side, praise God, the gospel has released me from that and released me into something bigger, which is his purpose of advancing the kingdom and building the church. So now that, you see, that is what God does in your heart and makes you go, yeah, that's what I'm going for. To appeal to Christians at the base of their idolatrous desires to try and serve God is just, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're just going to produce a load of selfish Christians. God in his mercy through the gospel has set us free from that. Haven't we seen the futility of that? Isn't that part of getting saved that you realize, do you know what? I'm not that impressive. I'm really loved. I'm really deeply loved, but I've really fallen short. And my mind is just running amok with all kinds of things I'm worshiping and longing for that are really dark. And God's breaking in with his gospel light and rescued me from that. Am I going to go back to that in the name of Jesus? I'm going to go back to that, but with like a Christian t-shirt on. No way. I've been set free from that for the glory of God. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about what? I'm concerned that this current kind of celebration of pride in our culture gets into the church unnoticed and, and leads to a, 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 a churches that are not discerning anymore. And also that are numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So they do something wrong, they sin, and where the Spirit tries to convict them, they're ready with a barrage of arguments as to why that's not what's happening. Now, God isn't convicting me because he just thinks I'm great. And, uh, you know, uh, and God's, God's not convicting me because, you know, he wants me to be the best being me I possibly can, and he would never say anything negative about me. It's just not true. It just isn't true. If you're being lazy, he'll call it. He'll call it. He'll say, I love you, and you're being really lazy. Okay, Because he's gracious and truthful. And that's why, I, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses for myself. That's why I pastor and preach like this. I'm told to imitate God. All believers are. We look at, how do you do it, God? You really let us know you love us, but you're really truthful with us as well. So we really know what it is you're saying and what it is you're not saying. Okay? So we're not just beating around the bush saying, well, if you, it, it, maybe, maybe there's, no, this is the deal. Okay, we've got to understand this. God will speak to you with negative words. Why? To uproot things in you that need uprooting so he can build on you well. He's all about building. But sometimes when you build, there's some things that need plucking up, uprooting. Okay, he's good. He's truthful. He's truthful. If you ever stop feeling guilty over your sin as a believer, not, I'm not talking about living with a sense of guilt, hallelujah, you've been rescued from that. But if you sin and then don't feel guilty, worry. Something, you're, something, you're, your wires have been disconnected. <laughs> You've bought into some weird ideas. 
It is, it is God's way of saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You think, yeah, thank you. Lord. Now I can confess that and bask in your forgiveness and cleansing and go on my way. Yeah? This is how God works, guys. It's how God works. Now, of course, outside the church, this thing's much more blatant. Self-fulfillment, self-discovery, the lot. But we, you know, we, we expect that, don't we? Because the Bible um, teaches that um, all of us, we, it says that although we knew God, we exchanged um, the truth for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. So obviously, you know, um, we're stu- in, we live in a world of, which is really in the cult of self-worship. Um, and that's one place you'll never find rest of soul. I just want to say that. And um, you'll never find the rest of soul that what we see in this psalm. So I want to finish by just saying, um, in all of our kind of search for significance and trying to be the best me we possibly can, just stop for a minute and think about this. The human being who has made the biggest splash in, in the whole of history, and Christian and non-Christian alike will agree on this, okay, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is undeniably truthful that the Lord Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth has made the biggest splash on human history than anyone else. No one else has come close. Okay? He was also the humblest man to have ever lived. He washed his disciples' feet, all 12 of them, knowing that one of them was about to betray him. He washed the man's feet. And then when Judas rocks up in the Garden of Gethsemane later with a load of soldiers with clubs and swords and comes and betrays him with a kiss, what does Jesus do? Lay him out? Give him an evil look? Just his friend, you betray me with a kiss. Just the humility, the sublime humility of it. When Zacchaeus, who everyone hates, is hanging out of a tree trying to look dignified, what does Jesus do? Rather than ignore him because it's frankly embarrassing, he says, I'm coming to your house for tea. Not quietly, in the hearing of all the respected and all the respectable. Why? Because he's humble. And when you're humble, you don't give a hoot what people think about you. See, humility sets you free. You haven't got to nurse your ego or your self-esteem. Use whatever phrase you like, term you like. You haven't got to nurse, nurse that and make sure that's in good place. You're just about the glory of God. The Lord of life becomes obedient to death on a cross. Ultimate humility. The author of life willingly submits to the power of death. I mean, it's shocking. It's shocking. So that he might pay our debt. What a king. Servant king. We, we, we follow a servant king. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, blessed are the meek, the humble, for they will inherit the earth. It's no surprise that Jesus, the meekest of all, will inherit all the nations of the world. And hallelujah, those of us who follow him, which involves denying yourself, we get to reign with him. We get to reign with him. That's the plan. That's how it's going to be. The offer still stands. Back to Psalm 131. Hope in the Lord. That's what it means. It means that you submit to his truth. It means that you honor him and are very concerned about loving him and loving others. Because you're probably doing a really great job at loving yourself at the moment. All right? We just do. This, is, this will produce a very different aroma. People go, that's different. Because at the moment it's getting frighteningly indefinable. Frighteningly. It really is. You go to a lot of Christian courses or... You know, Christians are running stuff and you get behind it. It's just self-esteem. That's all it is. It's just what everyone else in the world is teaching. But it's got a few scriptures thrown in. It's powerless. It's powerless. Okay? It's not gospel. You've got to watch this. Some of you are probably going to be parents one day. It will t- radically affect the way you parent. Radically. You're going to be running around the whole time trying to build up your kids' self-esteem. You just get on and love them. That's what they need, a bit of love, which involves patience, which involves truthfulness, which involves discipline, kindness. Some of you involved in the education sector, in the public sector. This teaching is everywhere. In my kids' school, it's one of their main aims. Kids come out with high self-esteem. I just want them to learn a few things and have a good time. (laughs) 
That's all I wanted from school for them, really. You didn't have to do that. Just teach them some stuff and be good to them. Let's do a little bit of Q&A, shall we? <laughs> Dave. Absolutely, I would say, um, yes. Sure. Sure. When you encourage someone or say you're proud of someone, well, you want to do a few things, don't you? You want to be specific about what you're actually saying. You did that brilliantly. That was a great thing you did there, you know. Or I just think, you know, you're, you're just, you know, the way you are as a person, I'm just, I'm, so, I'm just so proud of you. Absolutely, you know. I think that's good. I think also you want to also give glory to God in it. So say, oh, God's doing a great thing in you. I love what God's doing in your heart. You're pointing back, yeah. It's not, not, it doesn't end with them, yeah. All encouragement, it goes back to him, right? So you come up to me and say, good sermon. I should be saying, thank you, Jesus. You des- <coughs> okay. Yes, yes. Yes, that's totally fine. You deserve stuff that you work for. That's biblical. The worker deserves his wages. That's, a, that's totally great. Um, we're, but we're good to people because of grace. You see? Um, you, you're good to people, not because they deserve it. And here's where it's all going wrong. You see? So if you, look at, if you look at what the council and governments are trying to do, they're trying to say you need, people need to get self-esteem. Um, so because we... And, and, and so it's, it's about, do, let's do people good so they get self-esteem. And I'm like, no, let's do people good, Christian motivation, because we want to show and demonstrate the grace of God. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. Yeah, they, they don't. Whereas if you've got a mentality that says people are like they are because life's treated them really bad, they deserve better, let's do that then you've, you've missed Christian motivation. That is not Christian motivation. Christian motivation is this. People suck. They're selfish, rotten, double-minded, conniving, hypocritical, gripped by sin. Terrible things that happen can trigger terrible behavior. Terrible didn't cause it though. It triggered it. Because terrible stuff happened to Jesus, but he never behaved terribly. Why? He didn't have indwelling sin. We do. And there is just almost, I was saying, increasingly no concept of original sin, even in Christians' minds. They just think, oh, that person did that. Wow. What must have happened to them for them to have done that? Sin. And what we do is we look deeper. We say, yeah, well, no, but sin. But what caused? No, there is no deeper problem than sin. Sin is insane. You can't reason out why they're doing that. There must be a reason for someone to act like that. There must be a reason. There is. It's sin. And you say, but, but you might say, but surely there are patterns like those who are kind of abused are more likely to abuse. Of course there are. Yes, there's data. Definitely. Um, these, it's, it's one of the factors. But there's this deterministic mentality which says, if that happens to you, you're going to turn out like that. Or you're like this because that happened to you. And it points to the externals. The problem is it never delivers you from what you need delivering from. Yeah? So it can only deliver you from your circumstances, from your situation. But it can't deliver you from the power of sin. So you put them out of that and then you put them there and the same thing happens. Well, no, I'm not surprised. Why not? Because you've not been rescued from sin. That's why we need the gospel. The gospel rescues us from ourselves. We get to die and be resurrected with Jesus as a brand new person. That's a whole other sermon. Sorry, but it's really big. Simone. I do get what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Very, very good. So in terms of value, worth, how do we kind of walk that one? Okay, so basically, um, God seems to value us incredibly. Um, definitely, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Um, I think we, where we go wrong is where we tend to try to look inside ourselves to understand that. Right? God values me incredibly, so I must be amazing. No, that's not it. He values you incredibly because he values you incredibly. It's a mystery. And the saints down the ages have always been struck by awe when they've thought of that and fallen to their knees and said, you are, in, you are amazing. See, that's where it should go. I'm valued by God. You are amazing. And it takes us off of ourselves. Whereas what we often tend to do is we tend to take it into something about ourselves. And we can, I think we can get into stuff that's really flat. It's flattery, really, which is a sin. That someone, you know, someone might say, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to say, say some stuff without sounding... How can I? I'll use myself as an example. So imagine I said, imagine I said, you know, I'm really skinny. I have to wear three jumpers to look normal. <laughs> yeah. Woe betide me, right? Now, if you then start saying, you're looking in the wrong mirror. Man, you, you're triangular. Your shoulders are serious. What are you doing there? You're, you're just lying to me. You're just flattering me. You know, what should you do? What should you do? You should say, yeah, you're really skinny. Um, and and, and, you're, and you, if, if you're my friend and you say it tenderly, I'd love you to say, and you're being really idolatrous. Because you're basically worshipping yourself, but yourself ain't all that. And so your world's falling apart. But there's an amazing king who you can just really be amazed at. And he is altogether lovely. Let's get caught up with him, shall we? And what we try and do is we try and, like I say, we try and get people out of self-loathing by getting them into self-love rather than getting them out of self-loathing into Jesus. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. Ollie. Sorry, do you want to follow on, Tanika? Yeah. Yes, yes. In terms of teaching on the identity of Christ, it is huge and it is massive. So I'm not saying for a moment that you shouldn't do that. I think what I'm saying is, is that very often, I, I would say that that teaching is probably the one that is on the finest, is the finest one to walk. Because I think in, I've been in settings very frequently where it started out like that, but it's gone into something. It's gone into something else. Um, that is really just, um, how can I put it? God, give me wisdom, please. Um, it moves the person away away from seeing themselves. People start saying things about them that there's not biblical grounding for. Okay, They just really want them to feel better. Yeah, Rather than actually saying, what is going on here? What What is... What is the issue here? Now, I'll, I'll speak really honestly about this. In terms of my own walk, um, I would say that when I, when I first got saved, there were areas about me that were utterly, uh, utterly smashed up and broken that God's done some amazing healing on. And really, that is kind of, there's just but masses of idolatry. Just masses of it. And I would say for the first few years, the former was the ministry I got. This guy needs healing. This guy's messed up. This has gone on. That's gone on the other. You don't know his past. He really needs. But no one was really... E- coming in saying, you know, um, just really getting to the heart of what I was worshipping and what was driving me. And I think it was, and I think, so I think it was an, it was an unbalanced package very much. And I think what I'm really trying to do is trying to push back and say, look, we, we really need to, uh, we really, how can I put it, I'm going to phrase it. We really need people to understand um, that the sicknesses that we have, the things where we're wrong, our brokenness, it, so in some measure, is due to what's gone on. In greater measure, is due to how we've responded to what's gone on. Yeah? So, so if I'm coming to you saying, for example, uh, for example, my, my dad you know, said terrible things about me, and I'm, I'm an angry man now, okay? There's some things that need dealing with there. What needs dealing with there is the lies that have been spoken you bring in, what does God say? What is the truth of God? Identity in Christ, okay? Chosen, accepted, beloved, massive, absolutely. But then you need to get to the heart of why are you so angry 
Um, the, well, well, the reason I'm so angry is because on the one hand, there's a good sense of righteous anger. We need to, we need to applaud that, go to the cross and see God's, you know, God's wrath has been spent there. There's another side to it where actually, do you know what? It's because I'm really, I'm really quite self-centered as well. And I really just want everyone to love me and everyone to think I'm amazing. I mean, that is my, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> for me, what is one of my areas of idolatry? I really want people to think I'm amazing. I really do. I mean, you know, I have daydreams about it. You know, oh, no, it's, no don't, it, is, it is ugly. It is horrible. It starts with a daydream about someone getting saved. It's gone on to, it's just gone on to, oh, wow, well, you know, you've done an amazing, oh, excuse me, the kind of church you're leading. And, it, it's just, and, I, and I wake up in it, in this daydream, and I think, God have mercy on me. God have, I'm getting more excited about what people say about me if someone gets saved than that someone's been saved. I, I, I tell you, I need help. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah? And, and, and so it, I definitely need that, but I really need that stuff too. And I'm just trying to bring a address to that. Is that okay? Great. Am I amazing? Don't go, don't, 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 don't. That's great. Self-forgetfulness. So you're trying to wean people off of, you're trying to let them know who they are in Christ, but at the same time wean them off an obsession of self. Yeah, that's what the gospel does. Yeah? Is that cool? Ollie. Humility creates all kinds of images in your mind, right? Do you just kind of stop eating and sit, sit in a cave? Do you walk around and not get eye contact with anyone, you know, and wear rags? What is it? It's basically really, it's knowing the truth and being set free by that, okay? So it's knowing that it's not all about me, it's all about Jesus, and, um, and, and being able to let that break into every bit of thinking of your life and just living the good and enjoyment of that. It's knowing the truth and, and living out of that. And um, in terms of growing in humility, it's things like, I said this morning, it got a few laughs, look at your speech this week. Just ask God, so God, help me to scrutinize my speech and ask yourself, how much of it am I trying to impress? How many times do I lie? It'd be a lot more than you think. Um, Half-truths are counted as lies, okay? A spin is counted as lies, okay? Yeah, when you just say, because you just want to appease this and appease that, and you're like, I don't want to hurt their feelings. It's not really that. Often, it's not that you don't want to hurt their feelings. It's that you don't want them to be angry with you. So you make it sound like it's about loving them. It's not. It's about you not wanting them to freak out on you. Yeah? Just watch this. Watch just to say, God, I want to I speak with the candor of a child today. Help me. And then do it. And watch, watch the challenges that you face. It's incredible. Um, that was one thing. I, I forgot uh, the other thing I said this morning about how to, helping to grow in uh, humility. Um, yeah, sorry. But Tom. That's a great picture of, yeah, thank you, Tom. Yeah, p- just for the recording. So great picture of humility as John the Baptist. He knew who he was and knew who he wasn't. Yeah? And he wasn't worried about upsetting people's expectations. If I say no, they might be really disappointed. Then what they th- you know, <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not. Just straightforward. It's great. Thank you, Lizzie.
in tricky situations and with tricky people, how do you how do you respond when people are being really disrespectful? I think it's not so much about trying to get them to respect you, it's about getting them to be helpful. Yeah? I think saying, you know, so something like, can I just stop this for a moment? I'm not being funny. I'm sure you're you're trying your best, but it feels a bit the way you're talking is probably not helping things. Yeah? Can we can we go can we go again and just try and be gentle with one another? Yeah? So you're you know, you're not just putting it all on them and that, that sort of thing, but you're talking about being helpful rather than, you know, you start want you respect me. What are they gonna say? Well, why don't you respect me? And you're into you're into humanity. Yeah. <laughs> That's the news, isn't it? That's what you mean. You're into wars, you're into so I think it's about being helpful, making it bigger than you. You know, I'm really trying to get this job done and at the moment the way it, it's it, it's not helping. Can we talk about it? Conciliatory, is that all right? And one more, Seb. Seb, uh, I was kind of um, thinking about a lot of uh, kind of humanistic worldviews that come across at the idea of self-respect and stuff. Yeah. Some of which I really am like on board with, like the idea of human rights. And uh, what would a godly idea of human rights be? It does require a majority of white churches taking uh, refusing to serve the rights of that is an excellent question. I thought about that after this morning's sermon. In terms of human rights and, um, you know, does a child deserve the right to education and things like this? I think what I would say is, is that um, it's, it's probably just the word deserve that I understand. Because it, what it does is it, 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 it makes people stop and think this isn't just some kind of extra benefit. If you open a school, haven't we been great? You deserve this. So I get why it's used. But I do have, I do have, I would say I have a slight issue with it. So what's the better way of doing it? I think it's, I think a better way of doing it is, is talking about, now obviously, on the one hand, what I'm going to talk about now, you're going to say, well, the world's never going to do that because that's kind of gospel and it's Christian and the world's just not like that. Okay? So on the one hand, you, you, you have to be pragmatic and say, well, okay, while the world isn't Christian and doesn't believe the gospel and doesn't submit to scripture, maybe, you know, I'm sure that's better than saying, you know, don't open any schools, you know. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But I think what we mustn't do is let the world off the hook and say, well, the world doesn't believe. No, the world, actually, God is calling all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And, um, and where we don't, we have to come up with something that is secondary. It's not what it should be. Yeah, the heart of the reason being, we've not submitted to the gospel. Okay? So we come up with something that looks good, but it's not as good as it could be. Because, well, we're not, we're not going to come under God's word and we're not going to believe the gospel. Do you see what I mean? So, so we need to be able to say to the world, actually have, have a voice to the world and say, you need to, you need to get under God. Because as long as you're not, it's gonna, you're going to lack order in everything you do. It'll be skewed because you're not orbiting around the sun. You're orbiting around something minor, yourself or whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so, what, would the, so what would it look like for nations to be under God? For nations to be under God, it would look like benevolence to all, the ungrateful, the ungodly, just like God is with us. He causes his sun to shine on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He is good to the ungrateful and the unloving. It's benevolence, it's grace, it's overflowing generosity and goodness. It's crops growing in people's fields that are terrible people. It's the grace of God. You see, that's what it is, and that is God's plan to just be benevolent and good and for governments to reflect that so that is the ideal yeah now while governments aren't going to submit to, to, while they're in the place where they're not submitting to christ and going to do it in that sense then i think you have to say well look i guess i guess that that's a stab at making life better yeah human rights but it's got some really weird offshoots and unhelpful ones you, that, that's that's kind of a loose-ended answer but i think it has to be go on sorry do you want to say something on that lizzie I guess the point is it takes some thinking through, right? But God wants to raise up Christians that are willing to think, yeah? And you won't be able to, be able to think really strongly on every issue. But what is your issue? Where are you, what is God calling you to? Think about it. Assess it through the light of Scripture. Read really good books, um, really good Christian books about your subject. When you, I'm happy to talk with you about that before you buy, or even as you read stuff, underline things. You think, what's that coming out of? And then we can talk about it. Because uh, even uh, a lot of Christian books would be really, really big on self, just self-improvement, really, but with some scriptures thrown in. Um, and I think God's got something deeper for us than that, and just a bit more profound, okay? I mean, that's heavy duty. Can you roll your sleeves down now? Um, 
Thank you for your excellent questions and penetrating. Praise God. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this amazing, unique message, this incredible message that gets to the heart of who we really are. And we thank you, Lord. You love to shine your light in um, and you love to love us. And uh, we want to just be under that love, that affection tonight. We want to be under that acceptance in Christ. We want to be under that embrace. We just want to say, Lord, we want to be like it was said of Charles Spurgeon. We want to be cradled in the Holy Spirit. We want to, Lord, we want to live there tonight. We want to live there as we are praising you as we break bread and as we break wine, uh, bre- um, drink the wine. I pray, God, that as we do that, there would be a real sense in our hearts of awe that you, Lord, would love us and that you would choose us, that you would receive us, that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would make us brand new. And at what a cost. At what a cost to you. So, God, you've, you've done amazing things for us and we're very grateful to you. And we just say thank you. And we pray as we sing and praise you in song and music. Accept our offering. Lord, let it be pleasing to you. And let it be heartfelt. And let, let there be a real exchange between us and you by the Holy Spirit, we pray. We ask for your anointing to rest on us in Jesus' name. Amen.